Welcome, everyone, to the in-house roundhouse, where in-house counsel, outside counsel, and industry experts gather around to share best tips and practices about practicing in-house. I'm your host, Mark Enriquez. I'm a commercial litigator with Womble Bond Dickinson. Today, as our guest, we have Adam Fisher. Uh, He's the assistant general counsel at the Carroll Companies here in North Carolina. Adam, thank you for joining me. Uh, Thank you for having me, Mark. Great. I'm excited to talk today about a topic that I know those of you that are in-house deal with a lot, which is hey, I'm both a lawyer, but I seem to also be a business advisor. Mm -hmm. And Adam's going to help us delve into that topic about wearing two hats, the legal advisor hat and the business advisor hat, and help explore that. Before we dive into the topic, though, Adam, I think it'd be great for our listeners to just tell us a little bit about yourself and a little bit about uh, the Carroll Companies. Sure, yeah. So I've uh, worked for the Carroll Companies, which is, uh, I guess, our bread and butter is, is multifamily development. Um, we started with that. We have about 12,000 units under us now that we manage. Um, in the last five years, we've expanded our business. We do self-storage, um, we do some hospitality, and we do some mixed use. To accomplish all of that, we have a handful of in-house businesses. We have a our construction company, CIP Construction Company, who has built a majority of our projects, uh, mostly our multifamily uh, and self-storage. We have a management company, RE Carroll Management Company, that manages all of our multifamily assets, and we outsource our management for our uh, Be Safe. And then we have a land acquisition group that finds our, our land product for us that we, that we purchase, and uh, an assortment of other folks that are necessary for the business accounting, folks like that. And so I've been with the company in house now for about two and a half years, advising all those different levels of business. It's been a very, very good experience. Uh, there's always something to do. It's very dynamic, as you can understand, with all those business facets that we have. There are a lot of different legal issues and a lot of different business issues that require you to sort of balance, as you, you said, the two hats, the legal advisor and the business advisor. So that's a little bit about our company okay. and what we do. And uh, I guess we're headquartered in Greensboro, and I'm here with you in Charlotte cause Fortunate enough that they allow me a little bit of flexibility. I can work remote some days and come in here on on Friday in Charlotte. So that's good. No, I appreciate it, and I'm glad we're able to use our studio here. Um, Before we get into the two hats, tell me a little bit about your background before you came to the Carroll Companies. Absolutely. So I um, went to UNC Chapel Hill for undergrad, graduated with a business degree there from Keenan Flagler, went straight out of business school to law school at Elon Law, which is in downtown Greensboro. Listeners might be familiar with the Elon University, which is actually in Burlington. So in a separate, little separate spot there, but downtown Greensboro is a great spot for the law school. It gets exposure to a lot of the businesses down there. When I was in law school, I had the opportunity to work as a law clerk at the Carroll Companies under Brian Wise, who was the general counsel at the time. So I got to know the Carroll Companies a little bit at that point. But when I graduated, uh, my wife, who is also a JD uh, from UNC Law, was working in Chapel Hill. So mm-hmm. we moved up to Durham. The location didn't seem like the right fit. And I was telling Brian that, you know, in law school, I sort of had this legal training track and thought, I've got to go to a law firm. Right. You know, it's just, just where, where I belong, where I feel like my skill set is where, after I've been trained from law school. So I um, had the opportunity actually through Brian Wise, who was the general counsel of the Carroll Companies at the time. He introduced me to Kellam Warren, who is the principal of Mainsail Lawyers, which is a small litigation firm in Chapel Hill doing business litigation. So I was a business litigator at Mainsail Lawyers for three years, focusing mostly on intellectual property, trade secrets, and uh, various aspects of employment law that came with that. 
after about three years there, decided it was time to make a little bit of a switch. Um, wanted to get more into the transactional work, wanted a little bit more dynamic work. And I'd remembered the Carroll companies and my experience there. And I'd always stayed close with Brian Wise. So he and I got together and they had a need for a, an associate in-house person. And while I may not have had the in-house experience right off the bat, they knew I had the drive and, and it was a quick learner. So had the opportunity to start there and work from Durham um, and been there ever since and have been really enjoying it. Uh, they've been good to me. I now live in Charlotte. Mm-hmm. Uh, and despite that, they have let me stay on and work remote Mondays and Fridays. And uh, I get to stay up there and in one of our uh, corporate units Tuesdays and Wednesdays uh, when I'm working in the Greensboro office. That's great. I've talked to other GCs that have that kind of flexible work arrangement, mm-hmm. which I think is an opportunity. I Sometimes I think we could do it more in the law firm context. Mm-hmm. You know, we tend to, we allow people to work from home, but there's often, you know, people feel like they need to be here in the office. Do you have tips for other folks that may be either thinking about moving to that arrangement or trying to deal with it in terms of how to, how to make sure it works for both sides? Uh, yeah, I would say for me, the biggest thing I try to do is be transparent and open with the company that I work for. For example, when I started, when I was interviewing, I made it clear that eventually I will be in Charlotte and that may demand a remote opportunity. And traditionally, the company has all the executives in the Greensboro office. But I think with that transparency, it started the conversation early um, about this, got it in the mind of the owner, got it in the mind of the people who I report to that this might be necessary. And, you know, upon showing that I can do a good job, they wanted to keep me on, and I was able to, to sort of work in that remote arrangement. I would also say that it helps probably to have worked in the office in advance beforehand and ha- got to know the people because if you're going to s- try and start at a company remote, it's tough. You're not really learning the, you're not getting the institutional knowledge that you might need. Um, You're not getting to know the folks face-to-face. And sometimes there's this problem of out of sight, out of mind. Mm -hmm. If you're not in the office, people probably aren't thinking of you as the resource. And I want to be the resource. I I need to be the resource in my position. Uh, And Paul, the general counsel, my boss, can't be the only person who's people reporting to. So having been in the office before as a clerk and then also um, making an effort to be in the office as much as possible uh, especially the first six months of my job, I actually was always in the office. Um, allowed me to get to know those people, and by getting to know them, I think it also made it easier to go remote uh, afterwards and convince the owner that it was a, a good fit. And this may be a long-winded answer, but finally I would say just be responsible for your work and what you do and make sure you're always available. The worst thing I think I could do is get a call when I'm remote and not answer it or not be available. Gotcha. No, I think those are really good practical tips. I appreciate in particular the idea that maybe having some time at the beginning to at least be there, get to know who the other people are. That's certainly true with me. I found it's often good working remotely, but I find it easier with someone I've had some in-person interaction Mm -hmm. with. Whether that's a client or an opposing counsel, I try to get together at the beginning of the case, even with the other side, whether it's a formal case management conference or just something Mm -hmm. else. I just think it's easier. You kind of know who they are and you may deal with them on the phone, but it's, it's just, it's, there is something to be said for that personal connection. It sounds even more true where it's the client you're trying to represent, you know, to have some time there where they see you and know who you are. And having seen you a bunch of times, now dealing with you by email or by phone is a lot easier. 
Yeah, I think particularly to the general counsel position, you really need to be in the office. Um, I don't know if there is a, this is of course limited to my experience, but if there is a way you could be a successful general counsel and be completely remote, you know, especially if everyone else is working in an office situation. Now there may be tech companies, for example, that may all be remote and maybe that's just how it's done. But when you have all the decision makers in one place, if you are trying to be a business advisor to them, and you're not in that place and they're having an in-person meeting, it's more difficult for you to be involved and be considered one of the, the advisors of the business. Right. So being in the office, I find, is better for me anyway, so I always try to be there as much as I can. Gotcha. Well, that's a good segue to the meat of our topic today, which is that business advisor hat. Um, because I think that can be hard for a lot of lawyers, including lawyers that come from, as you did, from outside counsel or maybe even a longer term as outside counsel, they understand the general principles of giving legal advice and counseling clients, but that business advisor role is one you don't really cover in law school. You had the advantage of an undergrad business degree, so that mm-hmm. may help some. Um, but I, I want to talk a little bit about how to wear that hat. Let, let's start by, you know, do you have an approach about what the right role is? What is the, the business advisor piece of that GC role? Yeah, well, I think I think it's it's absolutely true that a general counsel is a, a business advisor. While you bring a a knowledge of the law to the table, I think your main role is business advisor. Frankly, um, I was actually surprised when I started. I didn't really understand that uh, when I started with the kale companies, and I was surprised to see uh, the general counsel having such an active role in the business. And so, kind of by observing him, I learned a few things about that and how to be effective at it. Uh, I think you need to know the businesses that you work for. So we have an in-house construction company and a management company that I referenced. Understand how those companies operate. Uh, How's the leasing work? How do the move-outs work? How do the evictions work for construction? You know, have basic understanding and construction knowledge. I think that will help you be a better business advisor for those different businesses. Because if you don't understand them, it's going to be hard to give good business advice. I, I guess one example is, uh, in leasing, if, if how does your company, your management company, notify its residents of things? Uh, either be it eviction notices, renewal notices, is it email, is it certified mail, is it regular mail? Because if you're advising them on how to comply with the law, you obviously need to know those sorts of things. If you're drafting a lease, you don't want your lease to say notices need to be via mail or hand delivery when your management company is using emails. I think another important thing as for an attorney as, as a business advisor to do is to understand its principles uh, and its executives. And what I mean by that is understand their risk tolerance, understand what their pressures are, what their day-to-day needs are, uh, so you can better advise them. I also think it's important to know the objectives of the companies you work for. And to me, that's the most important thing. You know, you've got a construction company whose objective is maybe to get the project built. Got an accounting company whose, you know, accounting group whose objective is to pay folks. And sometimes those objectives can be at odds, and you need to know that. Uh, I can think of one example. You've got a construction project underway and a lien is filed. Uh, It's your construction company, one of their subs, hasn't been paid. Uh, The construction company's position is, well, the work was insufficient. You're not entitled to be paid yet, so we're not going to pay you. And as you know, construction, people with construction experience know that doesn't stop anyone from filing a lien and preserving their rights. And the accounting group has a draw coming up. So you've got the construction company who really isn't 
in a position to pay these folks yet. And you have the accounting company who is worried that the lender is going to see this lien on the record when the draw comes up and they want it paid or they want right. it removed. Yeah, right. They don't want to mess with it. So you've got two competing positions. Please pay it, get it off the record uh, from the accounting company and, and we're not paying it. It's not time. It's not right from the construction company. And so as a business advisor, understanding those two different objectives, get it off the record versus we can't pay it because we need sort of that payment leverage. Uh, what do you do? And what's the proper solution? Is it, can we bond it off, you know, as a simple example? Right. Or take it one step further, is the principal, is the owner of the company interested in paying that bonding fee? Are we going to backcharge the sub who caused us to issue that bond? Is there enough money in the contract to do that? If that's not a viable option because of other objectives in the business, we don't want to spend that money, can we escrow the money? Would the title company, for example, allow us to put the mm. money in escrow at, for a smaller escrow fee? than what the premium on that bond would be. So all that is to say, knowing the objectives of the company helps you sort of assess what your business advice would be. Thank you. And I, I really appreciate you giving some of those specific examples because I think it does, it paints that picture, right, where the line isn't that clear. You, the general question of, oh, a lien's been filed, people may think lawyer, but you've got to think about the particulars of business because there are a variety of legally appropriate solutions. Some may make good business sense and others don't. Mm -hmm. And unless you're thinking with that business hat, you're not going to be doing that complete package. Right. So I think that's a good example. You know, I, I hear complaints from folks saying, this is all new to me. Um, I didn't learn this stuff. <laughs> you know, Absolutely. Um, do you have suggestions for folks about resources? Obviously, you've got a lot of yours, it sounds like, on the job, right? Learning, learning from a good mentor and Brian Wise about how, what he was doing on a business side. Are there other suggestions for how folks can maybe get some of that baseline knowledge so that they can be a competent business advisor as well as legal advisor? You know... This is based solely on my experience, but I find speaking with folks in those industries helps. Um, I am not by any means a construction expert or a property management expert, but I have resources, as you mentioned, inside my company and outside my company who I can speak to about those things. So, you know, as part of that facet of understanding the business, which is necessary to be a good business advisor as a general counsel, Talk to those folks when a problem comes up. If you don't understand a construction issue or if you don't understand a management issue, talk to your, your management company. If it's an outside company, call them up. If it's an in-house company like we have, fortunately, I can step, you know, step in the office and ask, hey, what's, you know, with the construction folks, how's the detention pond work? What's the, what's, how's it constructed and things like that? Um, I don't use a lot of paper resources for these kinds of things. I think because I've had the benefit of having a lot of in-house resources. And I always find that paper resources can tell you something, but they can't necessarily show you as well as a human resource. So I would just advise the folks who are looking for a better understanding of the business that they're working on so that they can advise others to talk to the folks who are the experts in those business about the issue that they're confronting. That makes sense. What about, I know you did the undergrad Keenan Flagner program, right, mm -hmm. at, at Chapel. How much do you find that that helped prepare you? Is that relevant or not all that relevant? Is And I'm thinking particularly about folks that have gone in-house that may not have that background. Should they think about getting some business classes, an MBA, that kind of formal education? Mm -hmm. How important do you think that is? I love my alma mater. I <laughs> <laughs> go heels. Um, but, 
you know, I don't find myself drawing upon what I learned, and it could be because there's such a gap in time between what I learned in undergrad versus when I started practicing in-house. I do recognize that we value MBAs at, at our company, for example. And I think that if you have that level of education, you probably do get a lot of good experience and knowledge that will help you be a better business advisor. But in terms of my bachelor's degree in business, I don't feel that I draw on it that much. I feel I draw more on experience and having worked in this industry or spoken with someone in this industry about what they do in certain situations. Gotcha. That sounds good. Um, People have a lot of thoughts about attorneys, but risk averse is usually near the top of Mm -hmm. that list. I know some people refer to the legal department or, you know, the general counsel's office as the office of no. Yes, absolutely. There's a sense of you guys just try to block things. How do you deal with that risk adverse, some of which I think is pretty healthy, right? (laughs) But we're we're trying to reduce the company's legal exposure. That's a good thing. But how do you combat that perception that all you're trying to do is is block us from doing the business we need to do? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I think... As a general counsel, you have to identify those risks. And you can not necessarily be the no person, but you have to explain why something may be an issue and may be a problem. But you shouldn't stop there because then you do get the perception of a no person. If someone comes to you with a problem, I need to build this thing over here. Well, you can't do that. That's not your land. <laughs> right. It's a very simple, that, basic that approach. No, but yes, right. Um, but maybe we can talk to the neighbor and maybe some sort of easement relationship could be worked out or something like that where we can get a temporary easement to use that piece of land for the thing that we need. So I think the answer to your question is to avoid that perception of being too risk adverse and being the, the no department is to not say no unless when you say no, you also offer the solution to make that response yes as best as you can. And I think in doing that, people will want to come to you more. Uh, I find that, you know, watching my boss, the general counsel, do his job, he, he's a f- phenomenal at this. And so I get, I get really good training from him. Someone comes in with a problem that we just can't find a solution for. And instead of saying, you're right, no, we can't do this, his ability to sort of turn that around into, well, how about this creative solution, can an indemnity resolve this problem where we feel like we're taking on too much risk? Will the title company talk to us about what they might, they might cover if we can get them certain documentation that they need? You know, we have a project where an issue came up with a restrictive covenant that was many, many years old. And yes, that's on the record. Yes, it says you can't do this certain thing. So maybe a no attorney would say, you can't do it, right? But the solution there is, well, can we talk to the title company and see, because of its age, because of maybe its non-enforcement over 50 years, because all of the prior owners who entered into it are gone, are there ways that we can get the title company to maybe insure over that as a creative solution to, you know, help this mm-hmm. work? Gotcha. And, and obviously, there's a lot of value in that kind of advice mm-hmm. where you're really saying there may be another way to get to that mm-hmm. business objective and keeping in mind the bigger purpose rather than the narrow legal question right. is a good example of, of really adding value on the business side. Mm-hmm. Are there areas where you don't think the general counsel should be or can be a business advisor? In other words, are there times where that you have to take off that hat and you're strictly the, the lawyer for the company? 
Yes. I'm not sure I can think of a specific example off the top of my head, but I think first and foremost, your job is to identify risk and explain it to the folks who are making the final business decision. If the business decision is something that legally has a problem, and your advice is we can't do this. Be, I mean, there's, there's. I, know I just said right. don't don't be a no person. <laughs> right. Now I'm saying tell them you can't do this. But if you really have trouble finding a way around it, but the business folks decide, well, we're willing to take that risk. I think it's okay for you to step back as a legal advisor as long as you have voiced the fact and made sure that the folks who are making the decision are clear that here is the legal risk. But you're, you're after that, after identifying the legal issues and essentially having only your legal hat on, you're kind of avoiding the, you're stepping back from the business decisions and letting the business folks make the final call on those sorts of issues. Right. Um, it doesn't happen often. Mm-hmm. Usually they're, they're going to look to you for business advice based on your legal advice, but sometimes they can be so misaligned, the, the legal and the business, that the business folks need to make right. that kind of decision without, a, without you putting on your hat <laughs> yeah. and trying to influence it. That makes sense. Do you worry at all about privilege issues? Obviously, the attorney-client privilege applies to communications for the purpose of legal advice. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times, it seems like the legal advice and the business advice are going to be wrapped up into one, so you're going to have privilege. I wonder if there are times where you give purely business advice, whether you worry about, is that does that mean it's not privileged, and can someone argue mm-hmm. it's not privileged? Yes. Any suggestions for our listeners on avoiding, I guess, the trap of thinking? Because I think most people think when I'm talking to the in-house lawyer, um, that's got to be privilege. Absolutely. And if it's a pure business question about, you know, should we charge $10 or $15? For, and I know it's rare. You're going to get that narrow. You, know, you may have conversations that, hey, they, that's not really a – that may not be a – a legal advice question. Yeah. This is an issue we're constantly thinking about, of course, because we are advising on both legal and business issues. And we prefer to have our advice, whether it be business or legal, fall under the, you know, the protection of privilege. Um, if it's strictly business advice, how I would approach that if I was worried about privilege, if it was something very sensitive is to add into that communication, if, it's, if it needs to be written, is mm-hmm. to add into that written communication legal advice that is part of that business advice. So they're sort of intertwined. Because at that point, I think it, it remains privileged. So if your ultimate advice is charge $15 an hour, part of that advice is here's the statute, here's how I interpret the statute, and here's the reason that it's $15 an hour. And then, to me, that would, that would preserve the privilege, of course, Maybe a creative attorney could argue around it, but right. that is how I would I would try and approach protecting privilege. Another pretty um, good way to avoid this privilege issue is to communicate verbally. I, I've heard of companies that actually do a lot of verbal communication only on big business issues just to avoid the issue of, well, is this a privileged email communication or anything like that? Now, of course, in a deposition, the issue could still come up. What was said, right? but it's tough to... I think it would be tough to argue to a judge that it was a completely solely business discussion and this client of this general counsel should tell me what was what was said in that in that meeting that the general counsel was present in. Right. So have verbal communications also could could help avoid those issues when it is a business solely business advice although thinking about it 
it's rare that there's ever going to be something that's solely business advice that doesn't also include some sort of legal advice that right. I can really think of. Yeah, a lot of combinations of both. Yeah. Do you guys provide any training or advice to folks about the attorney-client privilege? I ask because it's interesting to me. I think a lot of people don't understand the privilege or what it is. I don't know how you communicate that. I guess not just within the legal department, but like throughout the company about, hey, this is the attorney-client privilege. This is why we want to have mm-hmm. discussions verbally versus email. Mm-hmm. Or this is why, you know, what I'm providing is both legal and business advice. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say as, you know, in your face as sitting everyone down and explaining to them what the privilege is. But it comes up now and again when we have litigation and we have discovery and issues where we're trying to decide what to disclose, that we see some communications that we would have preferred to be privileged communications. But they've been sent to an outside person by someone who may not have known, possibly at a lower (laughs) level. Right. And so how we've addressed that in the past is, you know, uh, because we have a a larger company and our property management company, for example, has folks scattered all around uh, the country in four different states, the easiest way to address that is, is... memos and communications to those folks saying anytime there's lawsuit litigation, any sort of discussion about it or anything that could be a potential for litigation, please make sure you include the general counsel so that they can advise and we can help preserve some sort of semblance of privilege there. So that's how we've addressed it. Uh, it's, it's, I think it's difficult when companies get to a certain size to protect all communications between the general counsel and, and the business folks as privileged because folks are going to think, oh, okay, I'll pass this on. Right. Um, here's what my attorney told me. You know, for ex- I see it a lot with the construction companies. Yeah. Attorney says, we need this because here's, here's why. And then they just forward it on to folks and said, here's why we need it. And you're like, well, right. that could have been privileged, yeah. but now that's been forwarded on, have we lost that, that, that privilege? Yeah. No, and listeners will call some other podcast episodes where we talked about that problem where clients are, you know, sending not only internally, but often yet to the other side saying, oh, well, I asked my lawyer how we should handle this. And here's the advice my lawyer gave me. And now send it to the other side and say, see, this is what my lawyer says. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I've encountered that as outside counsel where I'd be like, wait a minute, you you sent my email where you you sent it to you sent it to the other, you know, the the client or the, you know, the other side. They were like, well, you wrote it so well. I just Mm -hmm. I wanted them to see that we were right. And mm-hmm. I'm like, you cannot, you know, you, when you share my advice and an email labeled privilege and confidential and simply forward it to the other side, yeah. that has significant implications, not just for that email, but maybe a broader waiver. So yeah. I do think, yeah, there are opportunities for, for education sometimes on that. Yeah. On and we've, we've tried to improve. We've created um, an email address that is specifically legal at thecarrollcompanies.com, for example. And have advised property management when there is a an incident report or some sort of incident, please be sure to copy that inbox. And that allows us, when litigation does come up, to look in that inbox and almost immediately identify privileged communications or potentially privileged communications instead of going to myself, to Paul, to everyone That's who's smart. been involved. Yeah. So because we have this one email, all we have to do is pick that inbox and we can go through look for, you know, the matter at hand and pull all of those emails out. And we have a pretty good list of our privileged emails right there for, you know, privilege log purposes, for review purposes, for any sort of purpose you can think of when privilege comes up. 
That's a great suggestion, listeners. Be sure to write that one down. <laughs> I, I think that is, you know, setting up a legal email for people to use that way is good. It reminds me of another suggestion from a prior podcast where they actually used IT a device to prevent forwarding. You, you, there's some settings that they could use on their firewall that would prevent stuff coming from a lawyer being forwarded outside the firm. So it actually, you know, they could set it up that it could be forwarded internally, but not externally. Again, that's something you have to check with each individual IT department, but that was their solution to that forwarding problem is just, we're not going to allow it to be uh, forwardable. So yeah. Yeah, I think when you identify the problem in today's age, there may well be a technology solution to, mm-hmm. to achieve it. I think technology helps and hurts. Mm-hmm. It creates a lot more communications that are questionably or uh, privileged. Right. <laughs> but right. it also creates an avenue for you to be able to protect that privilege. I think that's very true. We're about out of time, Adam, but I'm wondering if there are other tips that may not even be uh, related to the dual hat. But I'm, you know, one thing I like to do in this podcast is just uh, share practical tips. It's essentially a conversation. That's why I call it the roundhouse of other GCs. So things that you might want to share or just tips you'd like to, to share with other folks that are out there, you know, in similar shoes to you, trying to understand how to, how to function in, a, in an in-house mm-hmm. role. Uh, this is probably going to go a little bit off topic, but one thing that I've found to be extremely helpful for me is I use electronics often. So my notes are electronic, everything is electronic. But even if you use paper to take notes or take down information, try and keep that and keep it organized as much as you can. Because what I find is, especially in our construction group, an issue could come up construction-related in the beginning of the year. And it's not until the end of the year that it's become a litigation problem. And by that time, you've had employee turnover, you've had uh, memories fade, and you're trying to get the information about what happened in January a year ago. And if you don't have good notes, you haven't maintained a file on this potential litigation, you're going to have a lot of trouble getting the information that could help you out. And we do see that a lot. Um, And train your employees to do that. Because another problem is, is if you have turnover, you know, one employee's information may leave with that employee their knowledge of what was happening or what was going on to an important legal issue could be gone or hard to get. So train them to keep records, maintain their emails, and when an employee leaves to try and collect and keep anything that they may have electronically or otherwise uh, related to their work at the company. Other tips-wise, I I can't emphasize enough using resources. When I started, and this may be because I started with such limited exposure to in-house work, and to the industry I was in, but outside and in-house resources are very important. I find title companies have saved me from many issues many times that I would not have thought um, I could answer without them, you know. But even Lenders Council, great resources for questions about maybe unrelated loans that you're looking to close. And you have a question, well, I have, uh, you know, I have a new lender we're working with and we're negotiating this point, this issue about appraisals or something. And the lender saying, well, this is something we have to have. Well, talk to lenders counsels from other deals. And they may have advice on how that's been approached by them on other deals. Um, so, you know, use your resources. Think hard about who's available to you and who can give you sort of helpful advice and, and tips to help, help you give helpful advice. <laughs> No, I th- thank you. I think those are great tips for folks. Um, and again, very practical and pragmatic, mm-hmm. which is what we're looking for. So mm-hmm. I like that. On, on the 
record keeping, is there, do you have any tips for, in addition to keeping it, like how do, how do you organize it? If you've met with somebody about a potential issue and it was a year ago, do you, is it like an email folder? Do you have a separate work site for, mm-hmm. for, for Matter? I think that's something that a lot of people struggle with. They will, you know, they've got 10,000 emails, but it's a question of, are they just going to try to tech search them? How do you sort it? And if you're taking notes on a on an iPad or other device, I'm not sure mm-hmm. what, you know, electronic notes, where are you sticking those? Are you just keeping a general, you know, legal issues folder? Just, just tips for organization is something I know some folks struggle with in terms of how to do it. Or maybe you use a different software program to help with that. No, I'm not too high-tech in my storage. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have a company server, and we have a specific folder that the legal team can access. And that's nice because when you have new law clerks or new folks come on, you can share the folder with them, Mm -hmm. and they immediately have access to everything. You don't have to email it to them. You don't have to hand them a file. But in terms of organization, uh, when a new matter comes up, even if it seems minuscule, I try and create a folder, an electronic folder on okay. it. It's as simple as that. I've got a folder, for example, called litigation. Um, and inside of that, there's 200 folders probably. And each one I like to put in there. If it affects the property, I'll put the property name. And then I'll try and put something in that folder name that describes what happened, mold issue, uh, slip and fall issue, just so that... When I go back to that folder, I'm remembering what it was about, and then I open it up, and I essentially try and organize and store everything in there you gotcha. know, as you see fit. Right. But even emails are very easy, uh, at least through Outlook, to take, drag, and drop into a folder. Yep. If it's an email about, here's a summary of what happened, Adam, or here's the incident report, and I've written down my comments on it. Take it, drag it, drop it, and I'll usually save that file and call it comments from property manager on issue and maybe put a date there. Hmm. I think it helps... If you're just dragging and dropping a bunch of emails that are don't have a good description in the file name, you're not going to have any idea what they're about. And when you come back in a year to look at them, you're going to have to reread them all and try and remember what they're all about. So it's helpful to maybe good tip there's in the file name. Give yourself a hint about yeah. what it's about. <laughs> That's a great idea. Well, and I think it's very helpful today because there is such a crush of information on most in-house counsel where people are calling, emailing, stopping by the office. Mm -hmm. There's always this flood of, can I ask you about this? Or we've got this issue here. And so I do think it's hard. You're both trying to juggle and be responsive to all those people asking Mm -hmm. questions. But what you're pointing out is you will help yourself if you also have a system of organization because you're not going to be able to remember you know, that the guy stopped by your office six months ago mm-hmm. and said, hey, we've got a mold issue in Unit 3B. Right. You need to have some kind of filing system, and doing a little bit of work ahead of time will make it a lot easier to find later. Right. So that's a great tip. I okay. appreciate it. All right. Terrific. Any final tips or parting remarks before we wrap up? No, I don't think so. If you're, you know, I was a new in-house counsel two and a half years ago, and I've learned very quickly, but it's kind of trial by fire. When you come in, you may not feel that you know enough, but I, I feel that if, I continue emphasizing this, that if you're resourceful, you can do a good job at it. And there's a lot of people in your company and outside your company who are happy to help, and I've found that along the way. So don't hesitate to ask questions. I mean, in-house counsel, you're not an expert on any one thing, maybe the law, but not necessarily what the business does. So don't hesitate to ask folks uh, inquire about things, understand, because the more you do that, the more you understand your business and the objectives of the business, the better you'll be able to advise the business. Terrific. 
Terrific. Well, I want to remind our listeners, if you found today's practical tips helpful, uh, we've got a whole library of prior episodes on a number of topics that are of importance to in-house counsel. You can find those either at our website, womblebondickinson.com. You can also find a list on a number of subscription services, including iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud. I also encourage you to subscribe to the podcast at those outlets and, uh, and get each of our episodes as they are released. Thank you again for listening. If you've got questions about this episode or upcoming episodes, you can also contact me via Twitter or LinkedIn. This has been the In-House Roundhouse Podcast. We will see you at the next station.